This is the Lacare Cast. Hello and welcome to the Karai Cast. My name is Jeff and I'm your host. Each episode we take a deeper dive into all things Lacare. Today I'm pleased to welcome Richard Hutt to the program. Richard is the author of a new guide titled John Lacare's London. In it, Hutt has tracked down and mapped some of the most important London sites from both Lacare's fiction and his real life. He is also the writer and researcher behind the beautiful map called The Secret City, A Spy's Guide to London. Richard, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So before we get to your latest project, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about how you became interested in spies and spy fiction. You know, it's hard to separate it out from Le Carre. And actually, I don't think anybody's ever asked me that before. So it took a moment of mulling. And I don't know if you had a moment like this. I imagine a lot of your listeners had that Satori moment with Le Carre. For me, we were living in central London in the mid to late 70s. And my dad was a former civil servant with his own sort of mysterious backstory. And the first adult television that I was allowed to stay up to watch was Tinker Taylor. And I mean, you can imagine the impact. So it was quite hard to separate the fact from the fiction, I think, for me. So I had all the thrill of, you know, finally being allowed to watch the the adult stuff. But also, this was sort of set in a world which I knew well, or at least geographically, maybe not all the adult themes. So, you know, I think that was it for me. I think within the first, just the Russian doll sequence at the beginning, I was was entirely hooked. So I think the TV program was my way in, but I was also reaching that age where I'd exhausted all the kids section of the of the local library and uh, it was time to head upstairs and spy fiction was the first adult section that I, that I hit and I really haven't moved on. <laughs> That's great. And so did you start like just immediately reading Lacare or did you read other authors first or are you more wide in the the spy fiction world? Have you branched out? I have, yeah, and but um, I think like a lot of your listeners, you will always come back to Le Carre. So, you know, I've read quite widely across spy fiction and crime fiction. You know, I have a lot of favourite authors, but um, I, I'm not sure that any of them stand rereading the way that Le Carre does. You can come back to a book that you feel very familiar with, you know, after a couple of years and, and see something entirely new. And I'm not sure you get that with anybody else. I mean, obviously, there's a pantheon, but I think he's at the top. And actually, part of part of that is is I want to say verisimilitude, accuracy, uh, the reality of it, the, the 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 detail, and one of the most heartening things of this process and of this research for me was looking into that. Mm. And you you have this idea that everything he does will be based in fact, and it's so heartening to find that yes, that is in fact the case. You know, all of the detail, <laughs> if not the if not the plots, as he was at pains to point out, you know, all of the detail about the places and the milieu is absolutely spot on. So before we get into your, your current map, let's talk about the first one, because the the Secret City, I, I've got a copy. It's beautiful and it reads really great. How did that come about? How did you end up doing that? 
Um, I, I wish there was a great backstory, but it was as simple as uh, I have a great friend who runs a really fascinating um, company, Herb Lester, and he produces a range of interesting maps. And it's an interesting way, particularly of getting into a city that you know very well. But of course, a city like London, you have all these um, histories overlaid on it through a map. You can see things that you're very familiar through entirely different eyes. And he asked if I had any thoughts about a map which might work. And my first thought was, yes, yeah, Spies London. And the first thought was, well, London has been a setting for spies in fact and spies in fiction. So why not bring them all together? And you can probably guess why that didn't work because... I mean, I was probably on day two and I had over 100 entries. It couldn't possibly work. <laughs> it was just too unwieldy. I'd started off thinking, okay, who would we take from fiction? You know, let's take Bond, Le Carre, let's take uh, Len Dayton, and then some of the others, uh, possibly lesser known, but even some Graham Greene and so on. Already it was unwieldy. It was just too big. And when you look at how many events in the world of espionage actually took place in London, I mean, the stories alone, which are which attached to all of these different locations, are are endlessly fascinating. Actually, the challenge with that one was narrowing it down. So the first thing was there's just too much for fact and fiction. So let's stick to fact. And even then, it was a job to sort of narrow it down. There were some geographical restrictions as well because London's huge. So if you start getting outside of central London into, you know, there's some really interesting stuff happening in the suburbs. You know, there were there were resident Russian spies there in the 50s living very ordinary suburban lives, uh, but uh, a little bit um, far off for the purposes of a cartographer. <laughs> well, the, the map is uh, beautiful to look at as well as all of them. I mean, I'm looking at the Herb Lester website is like amazing to see all these various different maps that have been created and it's really I'm, makes me feel excited to see the final product that you you come up with here well i've just seen it myself and i i am quite excited too <laughs> yes it's uh, the designer has done a, a beautiful job well let's dive into some of those locations that you chose and let's start with the the ones that come from david cornwell's real life because you kind of split it into to real life and fictional. And so what did you find uh, the most significant or required the most work to kind of search out? I mean, it's all work. And I think it's the kind of work that I'm guessing your listeners who I think if you're interested in in, in spy fiction, you like doing a bit of brain work, you like doing uh, facing a little bit of a, of, a, of a mental challenge. And I mean, I welcome anybody to come up with their own because he doesn't make it easy for you. There's a sense sometimes of almost of mischief in it that I found that I would be looking at a location which seemed to match the description, but then key details would be wrong and plainly and blatantly wrong to the point where I thought, well, but this seems to work. What's he what's he doing here? Is he is he messing with me? Is he messing with the person that's trying <laughs> to find it? Has he has he left things out for 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 his own purposes? So a lot of it did involve a certain amount of guesswork. I think it helps that I'm from London. I grew up there. I've lived in all different parts of London, you know, and I like walking around London. So I've got I've got a sense of the geography of it. And as you know, from your visits, London can take a while to get your head around. So the, the, the most interesting ones for me really were those that required a bit of detective work. 
so trying to find the the church in south london for instance and i i i'll be frank i'm not entirely certain that i found it <laughs> i've done my very best and i've had to i've had to put a caveat on the top of on the top of the map because of the amount of guesswork that does have to go into it as you know he does change some details he does leave some details out there's a church in south london that uh, smiley uh, you'll recall in smiley's people that he tries to retrace the route of vladimir in the minicab and uh, we we know that he's gone to southeast london to saint somebody's church off battle of the nile street and you just have to ask for a pub called the defeated frog except of course there is no battle of the nile street in <laughs> charlton or, or uh, i'm not sure there's a battle of the nile street anywhere else and there is no pub called the defeated frog but there is a church that does seem to fit the description and in the tv version if you match that up you can see smiley turning into greenlaw street which is in woolwich not charlton so that's an example of what i mean by you know is he playing tricks with us is he being less than 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 entirely um accurate for for his own reasons i mean i think one of the one of the takeaways for me was he did write to specific places even if he were to change the details. So I did, as part of the research, and bear with me while I look this up, I found um, an interview with him from 1974 in The Listener. And I mean, uh, this, this was very heartening to read because you like to picture that, that, that he had all these very specific places in mind, and he did. So he said, he told The Listener, and stop me if this is old news for you, Jeff, but um, he said, I photographed, for instance, all the locations in Tinker Taylor's Soldier Spy and blew up the photographs partly to give me documentary help. Cambridge Circus uh, has this marvellous red brick building with a bank below. And the last time I went to look at it to work out the scene being played there, I saw to my horror the building had been pulled down. I thought, well, I must keep it even if they can't. So I photographed all of that. So there's a lovely image of David Cornwell writing with blown up photographs which he's taken of all these locations so that he can get the descriptions just so. And it's that, I suppose, that's, I mean, that's one of the things that attracts us, isn't it, to his writing is that precision, you know, and that sense of place that you get, particularly with a, with a place that he knows very well, like London. Well, and I think that's one of the interesting things about his writing and about the books that you see that are set in London. There's such a affectionate kind of writing about it as well as it's just it's there's something about Lacare and London that go together and I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit I mean the times that I've been there when there has been a book release it's like a big deal definitely more than America and so I'm curious if you could speak to that a little bit yeah so I suppose there's there's a connection with the milieu of espionage in London which I've established through the earlier map which is so many of the events which let's say informed Le Carre's plots happened around here because I don't think he ever wrote too too literally to very specific things but you know Oleg Penkovsky and John Vassal and, and so many other names from the world of, of real espionage those events happened around here and around these streets which he would have been familiar with growing up here and and around here and in the suburbs and of course he worked here and he worked here both at five and six so this was the world which he knew and he wrote his novels around here in his lunch breaks and on the train on the way in and presumably on the bus as well so it's a city that he knew well professionally 
and personally. And I think there's an affection that comes through, particularly in some of the, um, for instance, in his loving descriptions of restaurants. You know, I, I, I'm absolutely certain that David Cornwell enjoyed researching the uh, those parts of it. So there's there's a, there's a mutual affection. I think there's also that that sense that anybody who has lived in London or spends any time there, it is a bit love hate. It, it can be a difficult city. It can be a painful city. It can be a city that you know, sort of, if you're not in a particularly um, good mood, London may reflect that. It's uh, it can be impersonal and, and grey, and I think you get that from uh, Spy who came in from the cold, for instance. That that sort of grey, damp, bedsit London, which is just rather depressing and I think he caught that but I think like like Smiley I suppose one of the I'm, I'm not the first to observe this what the one of the things that's unique about Smiley is that he can pass almost anywhere in British society which is very unusual and Le Curry's sense of place in London is not just the high-end stuff it's not just the private gentlemen's clubs around Pall Mall. It's also, you know, the grotty suburbs and the bedsits and the and the dingy pubs and the and the and the bombed out car garages on the Prince of Wales Road. He goes everywhere. He sees every part of London. And, and I think that speaks to a great affection he had. There was a there was a great quote from David Cornwell about um, London. What did he say about it? He said um, he returned to London to top up the batteries. Uh, that's, that's from Cornwall, obviously, and as a guard against the very fey life of the country because he needed the thorn in the britches that London provides. So there's, there again, there's that love-hate thing. That's great, yeah. It's interesting because you do see very different Londons when you read his books. Going to some of these places that he talks about, what was that like for you? Because obviously you visited a lot of these places, mm. you got to see them, because he very explicitly says the, the place where Smiley lives which I think later on he maybe uh, hedged his bets a little bit and didn't play play his cards so blatantly. Yes, yes. For fans, it's great because now we can go there and see the exact place and know for certain. But for you, walking the walking these locations and seeing them, what did that tell you about kind of his process as a writer that you maybe you didn't realize before? Anything? Versimilitude is, is, is a clunky word, isn't it? I don't know what, what, what simile does, though. I mean, accuracy sense of place the the idea that um you know you want as a reader to believe that all of these things have been thought out that this is a very plausible and believable world and which i think ultimately is, is le carry's gift to spy fiction is that it is set in a world that we can believe and you visit these places and you find that yes that is exactly the case he, he does not do things by accident he is entirely Meticulous. So there is an account, for instance, of how many of George Smiley's steps from the King's Road to Number Nine Bywater Street. And if you, if you were to pace that out, you would find, if you were to, I don't know how tall you are, Jeff, but if you were to <laughs> imagine yourself at, at Smiley's height, that's about the right um, count of paces. So you you know that the writer has paced that out. You know that David Cornwall has walked these streets in preparation for writing a scene about it. You know that he's sat outside that house, that he's taken pictures of it, that he's blown it up. So there's something quite thrilling about that, I think. And you're right, by Walter Street, he does give the game away with a, with an actual address that you can go to. And uh, he becomes more um, opaque as time goes on and a lot more guesswork is, is, is necessary. As an aside, when there was a, an idea of um, compiling all of fictional spies into, into one map, 
my favourite bit of strange coincidence from the world of espionage fiction is how close George Smiley and James Bond would have been to one another. I mean, they would have seen each other washing their cars on a Sunday, I think. They were, you know, a couple of blocks <laughs> at most. Yeah, that's really, that is really funny. And hard to imagine them uh, rubbing elbows at the, the local uh, pub or something like and that. Yet, right? And yet, and yet, and yet. There's a scene in there somewhere, isn't there? <laughs> there's also uh, a little bit of humor in there as well. I mean, if you sit and think about Smiley as a, as a, as a person, and I'm not the first person to make this observation, Bywater Street works quite well, doesn't it? Because it's 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 not on the main river. It's a it's a tributary. It's a it's something which is passed by in the way that George feels sort of passed by or parked. Well, it's kind of like a curvy street, right? As well, that dead ends out. I think I'm right in saying that that was a very deliberate choice because it's a cul-de-sac and it's very hard to maintain observation on a cul-de-sac because you don't have passing traffic. So if you were to sit a watcher outside, that watcher would be quite um, obvious. Yeah, he chooses such interesting locations. Like you look at the end of Tinker Tailor, right? And the location that he chooses off the, the canal there where yeah. it's the, the actual location that he based it on is also very interesting. So he doesn't just choose any normal place he really goes to find these interesting locations to set things at even though as a reader we're not going to see them but like it gives him i think maybe a hook to to hang some of his scene on absolutely you know there's there's a sort of depth to it isn't there because of because of the reality of it but also you know he lives in an interesting city and he's seeking out the interesting corners of it and not just the interesting corners also the drab corners but, you know, talking about happenstance, you know, thinking about drab corners, I looked at General Vladimir's address and I was trying to work out where on Westbourne Terrace it, it was. And I think of all the, the descriptions of London, this is the one that um, really sticks to me. This gets this sort of drabness of London. He says, there are Victorian terraces in the region of Paddington Station that are painted as white as luxury liners on the outside and inside are as dark as tombs. The service road that led to Vladimir's part was blocked at one end by a heap of rotting mattresses and by a smashed boom like a frontier post at the other. Thank you, I'll get out here, said Smiley, paying the cab off of the mattress. I mean, that's such a lovely evocative bit, isn't it? You really get the sense that it's grand, but it's also faded and forgotten, a bit like General Vladimir. What I didn't have, of course, was it was a street number. I had a hint that it was number six, and I think it had been referred to before. But the thing that really brought me to number six was, and again, I, this seems to me to be a little mischievous wink. I found out that Sigmund Rosenblum had lived at number six. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but um, Sidney Riley was his uh, nom de plume, uh, sort of World War One era spy referred to at the time as the ace of spies. And it just seems too much of a coincidence. I think David Cornwall must have known when he chose Westbourne and number six. For sure. That definitely seems like a little wink there. And I was very impressed with your being able to find, and from one of his later books, as we said, he got kind of uh, trickier in revealing his locations and a legacy of spies. When that came out, I was in London for his lecture that he did. And I spent uh, probably too long trying to find the location of mm. the stables, which is like the in the flashback. It becomes this really fully 
living place in your mind the way he's able to describe it but yeah pinning down an actual location was pretty pretty tricky at least for me but i think you've you've cracked the code i wonder if you could talk a little bit about that well have i i mean all of this again i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm going to um plead the caveat at the top that an element of i think if you're grading this intelligence you'd have to give it a b because other interpretations are available but again this this is part of the, the fun game that he's playing with the reader you do get enough intelligence to be able to picture it and enough to be able to come up with a plausible possibility but to say definitively that's that's the one i mean that's that's difficult so as it happens that is very near where i grew up where i first started reading john le carre so i know the area quite well and the the giveaway is partly that it's a shabby and unrestored Victorian end of terrace house because that's now an incredibly expensive um, postcode. It wasn't when they set it up as a safe house and it wasn't when I lived there as a kid. So to a shabby and unrestored house will, will stand out. So I did a little bit of walking around uh, the neighborhood. This was, so I was doing the research just as lockdown was beginning to lift so I could go for little walks around there it was a challenge to find something which had the rear entrance as described and the parking space and all the rest of it the giveaway though was firstly that it was rather shabby and i've gone for 29 john street as uh, the standard for 13 disraeli street the giveaway was also that he calls it 13 disraeli street now john street leads off a main road with a plaque to benjamin disraeli at the uh, prime minister and uh, writer at the end of the road so again that feels a little bit to me like a wink like a clue maybe i'm reading too much into it but for me it, once i saw that plaque i thought aha got you that's great that's a great little bit of detective work and as luck would have it it was uh, the plaque is right around the corner from the public library where i first read john the carry so we're all guilty i think sometimes of building all our coincidences in and saying aha this is it this all this makes it all make sense and a couple of times in putting the map together i was on those moments and then reality intervened and I realized, no, I've got this wrong, haven't I? This this actually falls apart when you poke it. <laughs> well, and you, you also did some walking around Hampstead Heath, right? Because that's a very important location, not just to his fiction, but also his real life, right? Yeah, so, I mean, if you, if you want a, a fun challenge, which will never find an end, try and find the bench on Hampstead Heath that David Cornwall liked to sit and write on. There's so many contenders, and there's a picture of him up by Parliament Hill, which you can recreate. It's the picture of him. He's got a whippet dog at his heels, and the Royal Free London Hospital is in the background. So the bench is still there. So if you want to recreate that picture, you can. I don't think that's the bench that he was actually writing under because there isn't a tree above it. So you're looking for a nice tree covering a bench somewhere on Hampstead Heath. There's only a hundred or so contenders, but you're, you're bound to find it. And then, of course, he lived nearby in Gainsborough Gardens. Of course, the, the pivotal scenes from Smiley's People are all set in and around Hampstead Heath. And of all of the little walks, I mean, if you have one moment to do any little smiley walk in London or explore one little area, I would say Hampstead Heath. It hasn't changed much, unlike the rest of London. So you would start from Gainsborough Gardens and then wander on to the safe house where Moston, if you'll remember, is waiting for General Vladimir, who has, and he's put together this little picnic, but of course is destined never to arrive. So from there, you walk down the avenue of trees and it's so lovingly described in the book that it's not that hard to find the spot where 
Vladimir died and where Smiley comes to investigate the scene. And working back from there, it's not that hard to find the tree, and spoiler alert, in which uh, Vladimir has concealed the packet of cigarettes. So for me, that was incredibly satisfying. Obviously, I had to try and picture how much might the tree have grown in the intervening years. So we know it's got a fork, time has passed, how fast does the tree grow? (laughs) So I've made an educated guess as to the tree. The pavilion was more of an unexpected success. It took a bit of finding, but so this is the pavilion on which, as you recall, there is a sign and a countersign to indicate that it's safe to meet between General Vladimir and Mostyn. And the pavilion is still there of, of a kind. It's not possible to insert a drawing pin in the upright because the upright's made of metal. Now, I don't know if John Le Carre it doesn't, it doesn't seem likely that he would have made a mistake. So perhaps it's uh, not the original pavilion, but uh, certainly it is situated as he described it on the other side of a little muddy playing field. There was a picture of you, you posted on the Lacare uh, Facebook group, right? With mm. pointing to the, the tree, is that right? Uh, well, what I believe to be the tree, <laughs> caveats, caveats uh, apply. Yes, it, it's, it seems likely to me, it, you know, I was trying to picture how far up would it be that that uh, both both needed a stick and it was so far up that poor George Smiley puts his back out trying to reach it, <laughs> even with the stick. Yeah. So you've also visited Lacare locations outside of London, is that right? Yes, um, as luck would have it, I, I decided to go away and, and um, I mean, can you imagine a, a more fun research job than taking all of the Smiley books away, sitting and reading them at your leisure while trying to work out locations? I, I don't think there is one. So I took it to Cornwall to do it. And as luck would have it, I was only a couple of miles away from Tregiffian. So I took a stroll over there. I chose a very stormy day to do it on. And um, yeah, uh, you can only get so close because obviously it's still in the family. So you don't want to impose on anybody's um, privacy. But I think the coast bath is is highly recommended because it has the equivalent of Hampstead Heath in London. You can easily picture that you might have seen David Cornwall walking that, that path just as you might have seen him walking Hampstead Heath. And I know he was given to speaking the dialogue aloud to see if it was convincing or not or walking with friends and talking it through to see if the plot was convincing. So there's a real thrill, I think, um, for a fan of a a writer in in retracing those steps. I mean, obviously, if it were a couple of years ago, we now know that you could have gone to the Flask pub in Hampstead, and if you had been having a conversation which he found interesting, who knows, your dialogue might have found its way into a book. (laughs) Well, and... Even um, recently, I think Silverview, which was released, also had some locations that were very, you could really pin down exactly where I've seen some folks posting about that. Yeah, I mean, so I made the decision to to include some of his actual life alongside the fiction, because it seemed to me that it was quite interesting how the one had informed the other. And Silverview, I thought particularly interesting was that the office location that they go to very early on in the book is on Mount Street in Mayfair. And if that rings a vague bell with you, it'll be because of Ronnie, David Cornwell's dad. And I thought it was really interesting that a scene in his last book, a pivotal scene, a pivotal office, it comes back to his dad again. So by my reckoning, this didn't make it into the map because of reasons of space, we restricted it essentially to the to the Smiley novels. I think, uh, Silverview, it's number eight Mount Street from the description, but uh, Ronnie's offices were just a little bit further up at 51. Mount Street. Interesting that he uh, he chose that. I found a great description, by the way, of Ronnie Cornwell's um, office from the Earl of Kimberley, 
Ronnie had um, given him some checks that weren't good. So he, uh, he tracked him down to here and he described uh, the office as having brass plaques right down to the jams on each side of the main entrance with Cayman Islands and other dodgy tax haven addresses. And if you wander around that, that neighborhood, it's still, still the feeling slightly suspicious <laughs> businesses, brass plaques indicating who knows what exactly. Now, you do talk about various restaurants and clubs and things like that. And the one thing that I've always never quite understood, the club scene. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you kind of track down what Smiley's, because Smiley's Club is very different from the, the typical club that you would think of as well, right? Well, Smiley's Club almost defines itself by not being as the other clubs. And, I, you know, there's that love-hate hate again. Those private clubs in London are were at the point at that point exclusively male and exclusively upper class you might even say upper upper class whereas i don't know if you remember um the description of smiley's club but um it was founded by steed asprey explicitly in order to escape those other clubs because um he wanted to avoid um tiresome rules and bores like roddy martindale which is interesting because roddy martindale it later transpires is a member of the club which was formed by someone who wanted to escape the bores like him. I think, and Jeff, uh, you'll you have to correct me if I'm wrong, didn't Steed Asprey, wasn't he forced to form it because he was kicked out of the junior Carlton for blaspheming in the earshot of a bishop? I think that's right. <laughs> anyway, so he, he later describes uh, the, the, the club as there were no women and no rules, no secretary and no bishops. You could take sandwiches and buy a bottle of beer. You could take sandwiches and buy nothing at all. As long as you were reasonably sober and minded your own business, no one gave twopence what you wore, did or said, or who you bought with you. Yeah, you, you get a sense of it. So I've, 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 I've mooched around Manchester Square and there are lots of um, potentials. I think I've gone for the south west corner. But again, it's London and that is now at a very exclusive address. So I'm not sure any club like Smiley's could afford to survive there now. So let's talk about that a little bit because you did walk these these places and based on the time when the, the Smiley books, the majority of them were written and now London has seen a dramatic just change of fortune and, and what was that like? Did, was that a little bit of a kind of a cognitive dissonance to see oh, where yes. things are right now versus how they were maybe described or what it was back when these books were written? I was so excited, for instance, to find the location of Schmidt's Cafe, which is so when Ash tries to woo Alec Lemus in The Spy Who, he doesn't name the restaurant, but he mentions they've served Franconian wine. Now, the only place in central London that was served Franconian wine, as far as I could establish in, in the early 60s, would have been Schmidt's. And Schmidt's was a very cheap German restaurant, uh, notorious for having cheap food, steel plates, and very, very rude staff, and a hostess, <laughs> with, a, a hostess with a mustache. Again, you know, fact and fiction colliding. Uh, it was where Donald McLean had his last lunch before he um, did a bunk to Moscow. So I was so excited to have tracked that down. So I thought it, it, everything matched. And then I wandered down Charlotte Street. And of course, it's not there anymore. Uh, the building's not there anymore. It's, it's, it's long since gone. I've included the location because it's, it's still interesting and an interesting backstory. 
but those moments were a bit deflating because also I grew up around London and you, you, you sort of want a city to look like it did when you were a kid and London isn't like that. You can come out of a tube station that you've known all your life and be confused and not know quite where to go. But equally, there were those moments where something was still there and that was just terrifically exciting. You know, you still can go and have a drink in Elvino's on um, Fleet Street which is where Smiley met Jerry Westerby over a pink gin and a Bloody Mary, for instance. Shea Victor isn't there anymore, but I think there is a, a, a restaurant there. And one or two of the restaurants are, are still there. That's the thing that was interesting for me, too, when I would be walking around and mm. and just the place where Smiley lived, you know, now is a multi-million dollar, dollar place. And just all of these locations, it's like you can really get the sense that London... The at least the housing market has dramatically changed since then. Yeah, and it just changed a little bit of the fabric of of the city to a certain extent. We don't know much about Smiley's um, background, do we, or whether he, you know, came from money. But uh, the idea that uh, a man on his salary could afford uh, that house, and maybe maybe that maybe that was Lady Anne's money, I don't know. Yeah, but but could afford that house and the time to you know work on his monographs I, I, I yeah now i can't quite see it he'd be more likely to be in a bedsit like alec lemus is <laughs> definitely yeah one of the other things that i found interesting when i was in london the last time which was really fun is like we were staying in this flat that overlooked uh haywood hill the bookstore so it, lucky you yeah well and it found an amazing deal Trust me, but it was it was pretty pretty great, wonderful location, and so steeped in spies. You know, Mayfair is such a spy area, and being able to look down and imagine that's where Lacare walked by, and and Smiley was supposed to have been walking by was pretty exciting. But at the same time, like we've said, you know, there was like scaffolding everywhere as they're putting up these high rises and stuff like that right around yeah every time uh, it's it's a bit like i tend to think of london as as being like an old friend who keeps having quite drastic plastic surgery so every time you see them again you think i don't remember you having teeth like that or or (laughs) oh well mm. haywood hill and that area i think that was the first that was the first location i think after the circus that just jumps out on you because it's such a sense of place i think if i remember that scene smiley is actually in, in not a bad mood as he's sort of heading towards Haywood Hill, and then it's Roddy Martindale that sort of puts him into a bad mood as he's coming out of Trumpers. And it, it's a typical Le Carre detail that you get this immediate sense of Roddy Martindale by, by reference to the fact that he, that he has a haircut there weekly. <laughs> Who has a weekly haircut? <laughs> yeah, especially after uh, the pandemic. I don't, I, those days might be well over. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 I don't know. You could probably still just about now see gentlemen of, of a certain vintage wandering around there, you know, getting their shirts made around there and going to Trumpers for a hair, for instance. But um, maybe that part of London is um, quite hard to see nowadays, yeah. disappearing. So you, when we were talking offline, you talked a little bit about the, the timing of when you were researching this and, and how, how that affected this project. And I was wondering if maybe you'd, you'd talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so it was towards the tail end of lockdown, but that did mean that a lot of the initial research I had to do from memory and from Google Earth and just trying to piece it all together on on paper and on a screen. So what I did was then save up a whole bunch of locations and go on a little walking tour when I could finally get up to, to town. I suppose like a lot of people during lockdown, going on a little you know mental journey like that around an imaginary city was... Um, 
was actually a really interesting uh, thing to do. It was a really interesting exercise. Yeah. So I have to ask, what's your favorite novel of his? Especially given you were able to kind of go back and reread and for this project. I mean, he asked me on a different day, you'll get a different answer. But I've just recently reread Smiley's People. And in terms of London, I think that's the one. That one really gets you into the heart of so many different parts of London. And it's also such an incredibly satisfying denouement to the to the Carla trilogy, isn't it? I say it's satisfying, but it's also that slight anticlimax at the end. You know, you've won. Have I? <laughs> I suppose I have. Yeah. <laughs> so, such a smiley response. There's something about that. There's something so evocative about that book. I mean, I, I think for me also because I grew up playing on Hampstead Heath and playing around there and, you know, seeing that. TV program as well at an early age and wondering about those yellow chalk marks you know everything every time I saw a chalk mark on a wall as a kid walking around London I clocked it and thought oh yeah I know what's really going on here the Russians <laughs> and who knows I might have been right yeah well for sure there's a lot of activity going around in London at, at any time even now so yes I mean, there, there was a park that I went to as a kid which was kids only which was actually used by uh, the Russians for a dead drop, specifically because it was kids only. Nice. Uh, it, was, it was used at the time that I was I was living there. So um, I think about that and, and, you know, how much of that sort of stuff was going on a lot. Yeah. I'm very jealous of folks who live in London and get to, to live with that history and, and walk through there and see, see that, you know. I mean, every every city has its own history, but at the same time, London is, is something special. At least it has been for me on my visits. I wasn't able to establish quite why London had been the hub of so many moments in the history of, of espionage, or at least 20th century espionage. It's convenient, I suppose, but, you know, maybe spies have a sense of romance as well. You know, <laughs> that maybe they like the fog. I don't know. But, you know, so many assassinations, assignations, so many strange stories. I suppose we know more now than was known at the point when the Smiley novels came out about what actually happened. But when you, of course, now read those stories... It's astonishing how many ridiculous things happened, which were they to have been fictionalized, you would struggle to believe. I think part of it too is now there's the the myth of Spy London as well has built up so that it, it's like kind of a, uh, a flywheel where it's just going to keep going and going now. Yes, it has its identity. It, it does. But I mean, that goes back to, you know, I was finding stuff from the First World War where the Kaiser's agent was um, a barber working out of uh, North London, like Pentonville Road. But uh, in an early victory of whoever predated control, the British uh, were onto him and had all his posts uh, intercepted and used forgers from a nearby prison. So um, uh, fed him bogus information, a detail that I'm sure Smiley would have enjoyed. Uh, well, I suppose, you know, the other thing to say, Jeff, is, you know, it is a treat to, to live there and around there and, and to be around that. But, you know, London is also a great city to visit. So I hope that this will be useful if you ever were to take a little walking tour again. Definitely. Yeah, no, it's great. I've seen a couple other maps of Lacare's locations out there. 
but this one seemed to be definitely the most comprehensive uh, based on on the locations that you covered. So I think for for fans, we'll really enjoy that. Thank you. Um, I saw that you had dug one. Am I right that there's one in the Library of Congress? Is that right? Yes. Somebody back in the early 2000s created one, and I haven't found a copy of it anywhere else. I stumbled upon it doing some research, and so I happened to be in D.C., and so I took a trip to the, the map room at the Library of Congress. It's down in the basement. You know, you go down there, and they had these card catalogs and like they just stretched out. It was like the end of Indiana Jones from the Raiders of the Lost Ark where you just see this like massive warehouse. It was kind of like that, but for librarians. But yeah, it went down there and, and, and saw the map and took some pictures of it. But you're following a, a good tradition, but I think you've covered even more ground with this one. I hope so. I mean, I, I was very conscious not to seek that out in case I relied on it too much. So um, <laughs> my, I, I, I'll dig it up at some point and see if I I got anything horribly wrong. I have to say the terrifying thing about doing this is because John Le Carre was so detailed in his writing and so accurate to write something about him. And I don't know if this is this is a, an anxiety that you've ever shared is unnerving because yeah. he sets the bar very, very high. I think looking at it, I think this is partly his background as a civil servant of a certain era where you know I, I remember reading i think in sisman about how your reports would be graded when you were doing that kind of job and how scathing your superiors would be if you wasted any words or got any fact even slightly wrong and i think you can see that in the books you know you look at for instance smiley's people you look at the way that mostin is reprimanded for not being specific about exactly when he had called or, or, or for referring to it as yesterday when in fact it was after midnight so, he has this grasp of detail, which I think comes from that professional background. And that terrifies me, getting it, getting it wrong. As it happens, you know, I'm in a not entirely unrelated professional field. So I do understand about writing to a brief and writing succinctly and writing accurately, but I don't think anybody's done it ever quite as quite as professionally as he has. Yes, there you know, the one comment that I had to bring up, you mentioned how when they were going to film, I guess it would have been Tinker Taylor, and they asked him, you know, can you get me into MI five or MI six so I can see what it's like? And his response to them on on what they should actually do was was pretty funny. Yes, um so um I, I work for the BBC, so I I found this particularly amusing. <laughs> So it was the production designer, I think, maybe the director. So he asked, look, we want to get this, the look of this quite right. This was in a meeting at the BBC in Portland Place. Could they take a tour around MI5 or MI6? Could uh, John Carey enable that? And he said, no, no, it's not necessary. And he looked around him and said, the dusty offices, corridors, the elderly office furniture, and even the anxiously creaking lifts of MI5 felt like, looked like, and had some of the same kinds of people in them as the BBC. So I think <laughs> I think you get the sense of it. And actually, I think that um, that description of the circus is very good, isn't it? You can imagine from his descriptions of them. And there, I think you very much see David Cornwall drawing on his experience at MI5. Jeff, circling back for a moment, the other bit of um, strange coincidence between the BBC and the young David Cornwell. One of the strange things I stumbled across was that the interior scenes that you'll remember so well for Tinker Taylor, 
so you know the opening scene with the teacups etc they were shot in the upstairs of an art gallery on cork street which is near mayfair i wasn't able to pin down exactly which house it is but by strange coincidence it was the same address of which the young david cornwall had been taught how to apply for a warrant to tap a phone line when he'd worked for MI5. <laughs> it's crazy, all these the little coincidences that pop up or the way things loop back. I guess we think of this as a big city, but in some ways it isn't. <laughs> I love those little moments of happenstance, and there are so many of them. Some I think he's created, some are just, you know, the, the lovely stuff of coincidence. Was there anything else on this project that we didn't talk about that you really wanted to, to mention? Gosh, I shall think of millions of things as soon as, <laughs> as soon as as soon as we start doing I mean, it. I suppose I would encourage everybody to to do their own detective job on it. It's a very fun game. Those those descriptions and can you do better than I did on uh, working out exactly where they are. So, do we have the right shabby Bloomsbury side street? Is there another contender? Is this another church? somewhere near Charlton or Woolwich, which you think does the job. There's some that I'm absolutely certain about, and uh, we can be definitive about Bywater Street, for instance, and about the, the telephone boxes where he calls um, the straight and steady minicab service. They're still there, happily. I think those um, telephone boxes are listed, so no one can get rid of them. But other ones, you may want to take your own guess, and please do be my, my guest. Wander around, have a look, have a guess. Well, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time. Luckily, I was on my own, which meant that I could go and do this. I, I think if I had my wife with me, there would have been less willingness to troop around <laughs> random <laughs> random streets. You, but... you may want to be sure that you bring someone who is as interested in it as you are, because, um, <laughs> yes, it, or it, it makes a fabulous um, lonely London day pursuit. Yeah, no, I had a great time, and, and it was it was wonderful to get to see some of these these spots that were out there and, and troop around and, and visit the spots where you know that he, he was viewing and, and writing about. Yeah, I mean, it's it, if for, for a fan, I think it's a thrill to walk in their footsteps, but also it's an, it's an education in you know how to write, you know, and how to how to write well, which is write what you know and pay attention to detail. So did you have any future projects on the horizon? Anything else we should be looking looking out for? Uh, there is a thought on another on another project. It's early days yet, but um, I think I might exhaust the spy map of London with one more project. But um, we'll see. We'll see. But I also think of um, Peter Cook. I remember Peter Cook um, at a uh, party. Somebody uh, told him uh, they were writing a novel. And he said, oh, really? Neither am I. <laughs> Well, what's the best way to, to get the map and, and to track your work? So, herblester.com, I think, available from all good independent um, booksellers here and where you are. But the easiest way is directly from herblester.com, or if you prefer, you can order it directly through your bookshop. Okay. But uh, there may be some other maps of interest on there to your listeners. Well, I will definitely post links in the show notes for folks to go, and so they can go find your maps and i believe it's coming out in end of september early uh, october 
that's the plan, but it's publishing. So yeah, <laughs> watch this space. That that is that is the hope. I'm still, frankly, Jeff. I'm still looking at it and looking for what I got wrong. I'm still <laughs> looking for the typo. I'm still looking for the. But wait, did he or was that Czechoslovakia? Yeah. So well, I'm looking to put this episode out around the release. So ideally, when you're listening to this, it will be out there in the wild for fans of his work to to pick up and scour for any airs which i'm sure won't be there more like uh just uh quibbles i think is is what i would say which i think is the fun part it is it is so perhaps we should have a quibbling session again a follow-up <laughs> yes what did we get wrong that's great thank you so much richard for for joining me today to talk about the the map and the locations that was a real pleasure all right before we go i've got a favor to ask of the listeners i'd love for more folks to listen and one of the best ways for folks to give a show a chance is to see a bunch of good reviews so if you enjoyed the show it'd be great if you subscribe and review it in your preferred podcast app that's going to wrap things up for this episode. I'm working on a couple of other one-off episodes before we return to our look at another Lacare novel. And this time we're going to jump forward a few decades and look at a later novel of his. So watch this space for more. I'll have links to the various things we discussed today in the show notes and on the episode page at lacarecast.com. Please do drop me a comment on the website or on Twitter at lacarecast. You can follow me as I talk about non-Lakare stuff on spyrite.com or at spyrite on Twitter. Until next time, thanks for listening. Like what you're listening to? There's more like it. Barbican Station explores the spy world of Slough House and the Slow Horses created by author Mick Heron. Find it online at slough.house or in your favorite podcast app under Barbican Station. Spybrary's Spy Rewind uses one episode of a classic spy TV show like Mission Impossible, Alias, or Get Smart to talk about the show as a whole. It's at spybrary.com or search for Spybrary in your podcast app. Like the Wolf is a podcast dedicated to the Nero Wolf mystery series created by Rex Stout. The podcast has reviews of all of his stories, plus interviews with a wide variety of wolf fans. Find it in your podcatcher under Like the Wolf or at likethewolf.com. That's wolf with an E. They're all novel podcasts, and you can find them all if you type novel.network in your browser. That's novel.network.